So this is not a presentation, this is gonna be a conversation. So prepare, anybody that dreads that. Okay, sorry, you're here. So here's, here's what we're gonna do. First of all, let me tell you who I am and sort of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you through a couple different kinds of exercises or things to do so we can have a really important conversation. And the conversation that, that I wanna have with you so that it's sort of in your mind right now is what would it look like if we designed our delivery of care to be player first? Or what would it look like if this was our vision? And this is our vision, um, and I'll explain who I am and who reports to me, but this is our vision within the wellness, player and family wellness, is every player and their family, in fact, every employee is an exceptional human being. And each of them deserves to be treated and supported psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically to be the best versions of themselves on and off the field now and for the rest of their lives. That's a pretty, pretty powerful vision and pretty big and can almost seem like it's, uh, you know, unobtainable. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, there's been a lot of unobtainable uh, obtainables in the world. And so that's truly what Troy Palomalo, who is my boss um, from the Pittsburgh Steelers, came to me and said, hey, Jeremy, yeah, you know, and my background is just, you know, as I'm a critical care doctor, I've been a chief medical officer in two different health systems. I have an, a master's in entrepreneurialism and have launched an end-of-life discussion company. And then I've led uh, cultural transformation movements in uh, hospitals like Johns Hopkins, uh, in the Memorial Hermann system, in the Children's Wisconsin Hospital and such. And he came to me and he said, would you help me develop this culture? And you know, and you don't get to the vision I described on day one, right? So it's a journey. Um, but uh, what, what I think Mark and Sam wanted me to do was sort of introduce you to that vision. And I'd like to introduce it inside yourself even. And the way to do that is really with questions. And so what I, I wanted to do first though, is I wanted to do a couple housekeeping things real quick, and then I wanted to do, um, ask you to do something as, a, as partners. So the first housekeeping thing is, is anybody on call or expecting an emergency phone call? Just raise your hand if you are, okay? So here's the deal, when you know someone is like Sam that just ran out the door, when you know they are, then if they leave, that's totally cool because they're doing what we do, right? They're, they're responding to the care that we deliver. But if you're not on that, I'd ask you to put away your phone. In fact, there's data that if your phone is on the table, it actually, if you see a message, it takes you 67 seconds to, re to recover emotionally to be back present with us. So I'm asking you for this 45 minutes, please put away your phone uh, off your table. So I'll give you a minute to do that. By the way, when I told Mark I was going to do this, he just laughed. <laughs> so, and, and I've done this with critical care docs. I've done this with CEOs. So you guys are just as special. Here's the second thing I would ask is we're going to do some conversations. And there's going to be a time where you, this may surprise you where you're starting to want to talk more and not come back to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise my hand when that time has gone by. If you see me raise your hand, my hand, please finish your thought and then raise your hand as well. And pretty soon you're going to see the whole place quiets down. Now I was active duty for 15 years and I've been a battalion surgeon for 5,000 troops in Haiti. I've done a lot of different stuff and my old approach was like, you know, this or, you know, a two, you know, or something like that. And I don't find those are very respectful. So that's why I do the hand thing. So that'd be the second thing. Any questions on that? 
Okay, and then the third is, is what you see is what you get. So bring it. I have no problem with naysayers. I have no problems with disagreements. That's how I learn. You're never going to offend me. You really can't because you're rep if you're representing your opinion and you've thought about it, then I want to know about it because I want to grow. I want to learn. So that's my th three rules of, of thumb. One, put away the phones. Two, we'll respectfully come back when we're, when we're at that point. And then three is feel free to bring it. Any questions? All right. So <clears throat> I'm going to have you stand up. We all had lunch. I have a medical question for you. And if, if you can't stand, that's okay too. I should have recognized that, but if you can, please do. So I have a medical question for you. How many parts are there to a breath? You guys aren't shy, are you? Come on, how many parts are there to a breath? Oh, it's a trick question? It is not a trick question. <laughs> I have daddy's ears, by the way, too. <laughs> how many parts? Are there two? Who says two? Okay, who says three? Okay, who says four? Who says five? I don't know what you've been smoking if you say five, but. <laughs> so really there are four. Think about it like a heartbeat, right? You have systole, pause, diastole, pause. It's actually four. So you have inhalation, and then to change direction of your diaphragm, you've got to have a pause, exhalation, and a pause. And so what I want you to do is with me in a minute, I'm gonna ask you to take the deepest breath you've taken, nice and slow, with your eyes closed if you're trusting of your neighbor and open if you're not, but your eyes closed, take as deep a breath as you can and then pause for a second and then exhale all the way and pause. And so I'm gonna take us through it and when I say go, that's what we're gonna do. We're all gonna take as deep a breath as we can, pause and then exhale. Does anybody have any questions? Okay, here we go, let's do this. So we're gonna start with a deep inhale, pause and exhale. Okay, have a seat. So, how many of you were thinking about something else while you were taking that breath? So one, two, seriously, one, two, three, four, five. So how, six, seven, how many people are in the room? I don't know. 50? So, so you're somewhere around, you know, 14%. But for the rest of you, you were thinking about your breath. And what that does is everything you were thinking about before is gone. You know, the injury you saw last is gone. Your personal life is gone. What you heard last time is gone for a moment. And that's being called, called being present. And I wanted you present because I'm going to need your help with some conversations we're going to have, and I want to learn from you. So I wanted you to be thinking about that. So that is the beginning of mindfulness. Mindfulness is being present. Now, mindful listening is what? Does anybody have an idea what mindful listening is? Yeah, that's a great one. He said, not waiting for your turn to speak, but actually listening. But a, another way of defining it that's very similar, but that I like that sort of sticks with me, is listening to understand without judgment, not to reply. So I want you to see what that feels like to both share something and to do that. So this is what I'm going to ask is everybody needs to partner off. So you need to find a partner. So I'll give you a minute to do that. So could you please find a partner? Has to be twos, has to be twos. Who does not have a partner? Raise your hand if you don't have a partner. Okay, sir in the white, well you guys could partner. Who else doesn't have a partner? Right down here on the left. All right, I'll be your partner. So, um, 
So what I would like to ask you to do, can you, do you mind coming to here? What I would like to ask you to do is somebody choose to be partner A, and the one that's partner A has the shortest hair. Now, if you both shave your head, you're going to have to go to facial hair, but anyway, or armpit, either one, I don't care. So, so whoever has the shortest hair is partner A, and what partner A is going to do is they're going to share why it is fulfilling to be an athletic trainer to them. Why do they still come to work today? What is that thing that makes their job fulfilling for them? And I'm going to give you about a minute to do that. And uh, you your phone, sorry. <laughs> but I have somebody that has a watch on that can help me. So, um, so if you don't mind, help me with about 60 seconds, 90 seconds, something like that. And so we're going to share that. And partner B, what is your job? What do you think your job is going to be? It's to listen to understand. Listen to understand. So what does listening to understand look like? Yes, eye contact. And why is that? Because you're trying to focus. You're trying to see the nonverbal, right? Because how much of our communication is nonverbal or tone? 80%-ish range kind of thing? So, so a lot. So that's first, is, is, you, is you listen with your eyes. What else looks like listening to understand? Just being present, right? Not interrupting, not trying to think of a reply, but actually refocusing your mind to just try to understand. Now, some people are not, or some people aren't. Some people lean in, some people don't. If you actually authentically want to understand what the other person is saying, you don't have to do anything. Just be there, be present. And that, all that stuff will be communicated, okay? And then we'll go through that, and then I'm going to have you switch, and then we'll do it the other way. But I'll, I'll tell you when to switch, okay? So... You ready? Hi, I'm Jeremy. Jeremy, I'm Jeremiah. Nice oh, I love it. Just like when Jeremiah was a bullfrog, that's my favorite song. So, it's not my favorite song uh, because I've heard it a million times. Yeah, well, I'm old. So, <laughs> so Jeremiah, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? All right, so now what we're going to do is we're going to, sw going to switch. So partner B is going to share, you know, why do you show up? What is fulfilling still about athletic training? And, and you know, I don't know, you never know by a, by a person's gray hair how long they've been in the field or not. But I know I've been, you know, I've been a critical care doctor since, uh, well, I started doing critical care in 1991. So it's been a while. And my why never changed, but what gave me fulfillment did begin to change as I went through my career. So I think that's the other part is, you know, recognize everybody has a different story. So we're going to switch and we'll go ahead and do that and then I'll bring you back. So thank you so much. Yeah, so, um, so actually what I do right now is what I've wanted to do my whole career and tried to do. And that is, is to develop a culture that helps each individual feel valued and, and see within themselves a value beyond being fast, being big, being strong. I actually see football players as soldiers. They come from a diverse socioeconomic background. They are trained how to deliver violence in a very acute and disciplined fashion. They wear a uniform and they're endeared and they're aspired to and they're celebrated and then one day they don't. Their skill set does not transfer over and they no longer get the respect that they do. And if they define themselves as a football player, then they're lost. And I just think, what a waste. If I can help them, you know, through things that make them a better football player too, but if I can help them see themselves as valuable, see the value that they can bring to the world and help their families with that and help change cycles of domestic violence and suicide and all these different things, 
then gosh, what a what an opportunity to make the world a better place, to impact individuals. So that's my calling. I think more people need to address that concern, especially athletes in general. I mean, even just your high school athletes, they go through high school like four years and they're like on a baseball team, and then they don't get on to the next level and right. they're like, Right, and that's why we're creating a, a vertical and horizontal model too. Jeremiah, thank you for your time. Yeah, you too. Am I about right? Okay. All right, perfect. Did anybody hear a story that was impactful to them? Just a sec. Anybody hear a story that was impactful to them? That really, you know... When you listened, you thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. That should barely be shared. Will your partner let you share it? No. <laughs> no? Okay. Okay. Would, do you mind sharing your story? His story? Yeah. So did you guys hear that? He's, he said that, and your name is? Jeremy. J Jeremy? Jeremy and Jeremiah, wow, this is pretty interesting. So Jeremy said that, that what, what gives him fulfillment are the relationships that he's able to sculpt and guide, I would bet, and, and the ability to impact them since the people that he works with come from such different backgrounds and can really have that support. Anybody else hear a story that sort of, hmm, I hadn't thought about it that way or that was compelling? Your own story or your partner's? I really, um, is it okay if I, sure. So Jeremiah was talking to me and, and he said, you know, what, what I loved is he said his why. So that's pretty powerful by itself. If you've never watched Simon's TED Talk on why, that's a pretty powerful one for you to take a look at. But the why is really, you know, what really defines our decisions. So for example, in my group, the Northern Star is, is, is this in the best interest of the player? And so what we're trying to do, so let me tell you a little bit what we're trying to do, and then I'm going to ask you to help me learn, okay? And to do that, you're going to have to <clears throat> choose to talk to me. So I'm really going to ask you to think about doing that in a minute. So when Troy asked me to do this, we talked about, well, well, what would it look like if you cared for the whole person? What would holistic care look like? So I said psychologically, emotionally, spiritually and physically okay well what's psychologically what does that look like especially if you're taking care of the family well that looks like taking away the stigma right it's not just treating a, a issue that arises it's actually being okay to be human and so actually dr Pinder, uh, stephanie pinder amaker who's the head of harvard's uh program uh for on over 200 college campuses that she built from scratch and she did at university of michigan that's our director of psychology so that's what we're developing in that area. Well, what about sports psychology? Well, if you think about it and you talk to athletes or you talk to others, how much of a part does a mental game play? And then how much time do we actually practice it? And so Sam Maniar, Dr. Sam Maniar is, uh, was with the Cleveland Browns. That's who's my director of uh, sports psychology. Um, and then you look at massage because there's actually data that massage therapy, it's not just that it feels good, it actually can uh, ease uh, areas that would on, go on to injury and has restorative powers to it as returning people from injury uh, more quickly as well. So Sandy Fritz, who wrote the textbook for massage, is who our massage director is. And then you look at integrated medicine. How do we bring in different kinds of things? There's a lot of 
stuff being done in you know sports medicine outside of the typical arenas with acupuncture cryotherapy you know infusions so our integrated medicine director is what started mayo clinic's holistic medicine program and then you look and say well okay what about strength and conditioning so strength and conditioning troy actually had sort of a unique model and if you ever if you know this name marv marinovich you know there's a lot of controversy associated with that but one of the things that was really powerful out of that training is train fast to play fast and so that burst and if you've ever watched troy's highlights he's one of the fastest closers ever um, and it, a lot of it reflects that kind of training. So we're really looking at how do we develop a strength and conditioning program that really helps the athlete be their best version of themselves whenever they're on the field. And then, you know, you look at we're trying to develop family therapy. So we're actually working with the Center for Youth Wellness out of San Francisco with Dr. Burke Harris to bring in what are these called adverse childhood, um, ad, uh, I just forgot what the E is. ACEs, but um, adverse, oh, adverse childhood events. And that could be anything from a divorce to domestic violence to, you know, a rape or a sexual assault to, you know, um, homelessness, any, any of these kind of things, major illness in the family, death in the family. But it turns out when there are, as those ads up, add up, the health of the person over their lifetime is dramatically affected. So there's an opportunity with a family approach to break cycles of domestic violence, to break cycles of child abuse, and, and suicide and some other kinds of things. So as we look at trying to help a, a player, an exceptional human being and their family over their lifetime, we're developing this approach. But here's the part that's really interesting to me is how, how do you deliver player first care? What does it look like? And that's my question to you is help me think about from an athletic trainer, if you're doing player first care, if you're doing what is in the best interest of the player, which a lot of times you are, I'm sure, but sometimes there may be conflicts or not, but what does it look like? How do you enter that? You know, because I know as a doctor, like I have, a, um, and this is not a positive or negative, but it was definitely a challenging situation. I had a patient who was a Jehovah's Witness, and they had, uh, had a GI bleed, and they came in and they had a hemoglobin of... Um, uh, they had a hemoglobin of four and hematocrit of 12. And they needed to go to the operating room because they couldn't fix it with an with a endoscopy. And so the patient said, you know, I won't accept blood. I'd rather die than accept blood. And the surgeon's like, well, you can't do that to me because I'm going to have bleeding when I, when I do this surgery. I mean, I'll kill you. And the person said, I'm sorry, that's, that's my beliefs. And so it created a lot of stress, right, because the doctor felt they knew what was right and yet it was in conflict to the patient's interests. And in the end, a patient-first approach was we honored the patient's wishes and did everything we could to minimize a chance of him dying in the operating room. In that case, he didn't, but there are other cases where that isn't the case. So I guess I just wanna talk with you. What would it look like? What should I do? How should I build a program? Could be EMRs we're talking about. It could be insurance we're talking about. It, because in my mind, see, I'm an entrepreneurial mindset. So if I start from the place, well, how am I gonna make this work in today's healthcare model? Then I've just limited a ton of innovation. But on the other hand, if I look at how can I develop resources and approaches and processes that will allow supporting of change, that's a totally different kind of thing. And that's where I'm sort of at, but I just wanted to ask it or ask me a question and, we'll, and that'll start the conversation. So I'm gonna sit here and we're gonna have a real quiet time or you're gonna engage. Medical autonomy, what does that mean to you? Being able to do your job without outside interference of a non-medical person. 
So you see player first as being defined from your role? Not necessarily from my role. Well, you're medical, right? Well, yes. First do no harm, right? So Well, I don't know if that's right. So so I, I'm not gonna give you rights or wrongs, but Okay. But why is a coach interfering with what we do with player A because he needs to win the game? Take care of the player regardless of that outside interference. You can't in, you should not influence me or any other medical professional, how we're going to take care of them. Great. <clears throat> so I think, I think I, I like that, and I can agree with that. As a, as a critical care doc, I've actually had administrators leave my, <laughs> where we're trying to be influenced by, you know, and have had to deal with that kind of thing. But I would say, I think that that could be player first, but it's really medical practitioner first. And so I want to take you back to what would player first. Now, if you had said to me, is um, shared decision making. I've said that before, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know who says everything's big in Texas? Only a Texan. <laughs> so, so um, you know, when you're from Montana, you go, right, yeah, okay, or Alaska. So, um, so I, I, think, I think it's a real important part of that, right? Because what you want is you want the decision that's being made to be made in the best interest of the person and their health, not in the best interest of the outcome of the football game. So I, that's what you're saying, I get. But to really have it play, you have to have to share decision-making because you really can't all put it in the, in the player's hands either, right? Because the player could say, I got to get back on that field. They just took a head hit. You know that they've had a concussion, but they're like, I got to play, I got to play, you know? And, and so it can go both ways. Yes, that's why I like shared decision, but others? But even, I'm sorry, <laughs> but even in that same instance, I've had parents that kid has a concussion and the parent wants them to go back in and play. Sure, sure, so, so I think, I mean, I know that there's so much emotion associated with this part because you each have a story about that. So I definitely think that's part of, a good part of the conversation. I learned from that is what would just shared decision making look like in the sports industry. So I think that's very valuable. I want to see if there are other points to discuss on that. And so I saw a hand over here. Um, Dr. Blake, how could you advise us to overcome time constraints within high school settings, one, two, and given the high school setting, how can we overcome some of the perceptions, real or imagined, of conversations with the kid, comfort level. Uh, it's great to hear college level, pro levels yourself come and speak, but from my perspective, to apply, case in point, shut up. Colleague in the room knows that also at one of his former uh, high school campuses, a gentleman came to us and said, if you've got a kid with a concussion, just not getting better. Yeah. 
So <clears throat> I, I didn't, I failed to do something that I told Mark I would do at the very beginning too. And, and one thing I have to differentiate, just as sort of a disclaimer, is I'm not the head of medical. So there are actually two physicians that are leaders in our organization. I know, but I, so I'm not an athletic trainer. I mean, hats off to you. My, my daughter's a D1, was a D1 athlete. So I have a lot of appreciation of that. And so I can't really give you medical guidelines kind of stuff, but, but I can go, no, I know, but I'm just doing a disclaimer, but I'll come back and work with your question. So, um, and then if I don't get it right, feel free to help me, okay? So one of them is, is, is as we're beginning, so at a high school level, as we're beginning to have these conversations with players and we're trying to do a shared decision-making, how do we, one, create the time to be able to have a quality conversation in the world that we're in? Is that one of them? decision-making has started with, but just in general, as you said, there's life outside of athletics. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we build time if, if it is an athletic injury? My example was concussions, and they need one-on-one, -on -one, but there's 20 kids on a game day that need to go, and this kid apparently is in crisis, and there's one athletic trainer in the training room, and the other one's at uh, an event for those that are fortunate enough to have mm -hmm. two or even just long-term for concussions, or long-term because they slept under a bridge that night, or long-term, or even initial because they're going through a divorce. Or sure. Yeah. How do you help them with life? How do you find time to help them with life? Yeah. You know, I, I liked um, when you said that, um, when Jeremy said that, uh, you know, you want to develop relationships because that's where some of that support comes from. I don't have a good answer for you because what you're asking is, is our staffing model correct? I mean, that's really, the, because it sounds like your intent is great. Your heart is great. And you've had some of those relationships that you've been able to have with, a, with different players where you really helped them in that scenario or have tried to. And then you have others where you wanted to be able to, but there was no way because of the, all of the other things pressing on your life. Um, what, what I do know is a couple things I do know that probably aren't that helpful to you, and I'm sorry that I can't be more helpful, is one is I've never had a good five-minute conversation. So when anybody ever says to me, can I talk to you for five minutes, then, then that, all that means to me as a leader is they want to vomit. And then they're going to vomit, and then they're going to run away, and I'm left with their vomit all over me. So what I say is, is wow, I really value you. So I would love to reschedule this when I have time to actually be present and listen. So I think that is a skill that you can use no matter where you're at, no matter how busy you are, is recognize a moment that is gonna to need to be captured and then commit to setting up a moment at a different time where you can be present. That's one. Yeah? Okay, okay you were trying to get a head start on every other hand that was going up? I see how you are. All right, and then two is there's a thing that I can't teach you because it's trademarked, but I could share with you, that's called a heart head heart. And the first thing is people are never going to quit saying what they're saying to you till they feel that you listen to them. Until a person feels heard, there's a Maya Angelou quote, and I won't quite get it right, but she's a, she's a, um, a, a, a black poet. And what she, what she said is, I've learned in my life that people will never remember what I say. People will never remember what I do. People will remember how I made them feel. 
And so I think the second thing you can do that really happens with these quality relationships that you'd like to have time for is, is that you could actually, one, set up that time to listen, but the second is use heart, head, heart. And what that does is, is, it, is it's a really powerful tool for difficult conversations. And it starts something like this. It'd say, what is your name? I'm sorry, sir. Mitch. So I'd say, Mitch, you know, wow, it sounds like there's some stuff you're thinking about that's going in on and what you're doing and I really appreciate you sharing with me. So that's hard. I'm saying, and, and then I'm not making stuff up, I really feel this way. But that tells you that, wow, he really does care. And then the second part is, is you know, a lot of the stuff you're asking, I really would have to know the model of delivery of care to be helpful in that. And I actually don't. That's why I'm in charge of wellness and not medical. And, uh, and I feel bad about that because your question is really, it's really authentic and it really deserves attention that I'm, I wish I could give more of. And then the last heart part is, is I'm hoping that, that maybe the couple little things I said or someone else in the room has, who is trying to develop other flow models can maybe collaborate with you to try to make that work because I, I, I wanted to be able to help you more than I could. So that heart head heart um, that you can use, and it's real simple, actually allows people to feel um, authentically cared about, and it gives you the opportunity to have a second conversation, which is usually the really powerful one. But I'm sorry I couldn't answer more with that. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go to super ready guy. <laughs> you said a uh, player first, right? So yes. So let me ask you a question. How are you going to know what, what the players want? How are you going to know what the players want? So if you got a player first model, how do you know? Because like you can design a Lamborghini, but if they can't drive a stick, you're screwed, right? Excuse, cut the screwed part from the... <laughs> so how, how, do you, how do you know? Um, yeah, I mean, um, well, I think, so I think whenever you, uh, treat an injury and don't recognize that there's a person associated with that, then you miss the boat. Whenever, you know, that's the guy with the knee and that's the guy with the concussion and that's the gal with the ankle. Whenever you're in that mix, then you've lost that empathy part of it. But I think it's more than that because we think we know people, but we don't. I mean, you really, you know, you, you, you often think you know people, but when you really take time to do mindful listening, you actually find out a lot of things about yourself and them as well. So to me, what I say, the reason I teach mindful listening is if the, first, if the one thing you walked away from this conversation is you said, then, you know, I'm going to pick a player that I know is going to be coming and talking to me, you know, every day for the next, you know, eight days that I'm going to be involved. And I'm going to try to listen to them to understand rather than to reply for the first part of the conversation. If you just did that, what you would find is, is probably you would economize them. So in doctors, for example, what they found is doctors interrupt patients within the first, how many, what time frame? Any idea? Three? Did you say three? Wow, you're aggressive. Not quite three, but, <laughs> but I appreciate that skepticism. <laughs> so anybody else? 
<clears throat> pretty close, 13. So it's been done in ED studies and it's been done in primary care settings. And what it turns out is, is, there's, is that when you don't interrupt, when you ask that open-ended question, your total visit is shorter. Because that, that my Angela quote, they don't have to say again and again what you never heard the first time. And so it turns out that you have a more economized. So it's, it's usually, there's two studies, one's 13, one's 16. But anyway, so to me, the first way to be players first is to listen. So actually my team will be going out during the season. We'll have the strength and conditioning coach identify three players. Why, why the strength and conditioning coach? Well, Rather than know, the word I would say is, is they have a stronger, a different kind of relationship, a more intimate relationship many times because of their time together is my understanding. I, I, I'm always confused with the word no, honestly, so I'll always probably trigger off that because I think no means we have more insight than many times we do. I mean, think about somebody who thinks they know you and do they really, you know, your boss. They think they know you, but do they really, you know? So, um, so that would be, that would be one is, is to go out and listen to them. So we're going to, they're going to identify three players and we're asking them to identify, you know, any different kinds of things. Why do we not choose captains of the team? Cause they want to, they want to often, you know, give a per, their perspective and their, their conclusion of what everybody else feels. And they've been identified as that voice box. So that's an easy one to get. I could get a captain's voice anytime. But the strength and conditioning coach is going to give me somebody that will really tell me what they think, potentially, but is not necessarily the voice box of the team. So it gives me three different perspectives. One strength and conditioning coach said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the best player on the team that's going to make it to the NFL. I'm going to give you one that has a real outside chance. If they work hard, and I'm going to give you one that's never going to make it, in my estimation. And that's going to give me three different perspectives. So here are the four questions I'm going to ask them, and I'm totally open to you guys having different thoughts about these or, or challenging them or agreeing with them. The first is, is what happened to you on the way to work this morning? That's a pretty powerful question. It sounds simple, but think about in your own lives. Somebody in this room has a sick kid, so they're probably worried about that. Somebody took time off to be here, and so their paycheck's going to be smaller maybe. Somebody, um, you know, if you look at an athlete, you know, um, or if you're, let's say you're a single parent, somebody's not getting laundry done if this was your day off. Somebody's not going to the store during this time or things like that. But let's say that you're, you know, we will go to real life issues. So let's go to soldier kind of issues that I've seen. Let's say that you hit your girlfriend last night and you wonder if she's going to be there when you get home. Or let's say you were playing hoop and you're a wide receiver or a linebacker and you tweaked your knee. Are you going to get cut? Are you going to have a job? You know, so what happens is, is that question can be very significant if you can create a, a conversation that will allow that sharing. And these are all going to be anonymous conversations. The second question is going to be, what are we doing well? Because there's, there's a, a type of psychology, and Mark, you're going to tell me when I run out of time, right? I can, yeah. Okay. Is it now or before? No, you're good. Yeah, that's about right. So the second question is... Um, is what did we do? What, what, what are we doing that's positive? The reason I choose that is there's a, a type of psychology called positive psychology. Has anybody ever heard of that? Actually, there's a guy named Sean Aker. This is a great book if you just want to read. It's called, it's called The Happiness Advantage. And what he did is, is he's done a bunch of studies, his specific disciplines at Harvard, is to study uh, positive psychology. And what he did is he went and worked with the 2008 Wall Street bankers. This is one example of what he's done. 
And those guys were pretty friggin' depressed because, you know, the whole economy had fallen out, you know, their clients, everything. And, uh, and so we went with work with them and it was really an attempt to keep them in their jobs and avoid, you know, depression and suicide is really what he was trying to do the intervention. And so what they do is, is every day for 21 days, you write three positive things at the end of the day that happened to you during the day. And I've actually done this, and, and what happens the first week is you're trying to think, okay, what happened that was positive? The second week, you're in the middle of something, and you go, oh, I bet this will be one of my positives. And the third, you start to enter into situations, and you think, I bet this will end up being a positive. So, you know, trying to remember one, in the middle of one, now predicting one. And it begins to change the way you look at the world. And think about what your job is. Your job is to find problems and errors. It's not to find good. You don't go out and go wow, 88's really running well. You go, hey, 27's favoring that left side slightly. I wonder, I wonder if he's tweaked something he didn't tell us, right? I mean, we're looking for errors. Doctors too, lawyers too, Wall Street, you're looking for trends, mistakes, errors. So we become very negative pattern oriented. And the third one is, is where's the next injury coming from and to whom? Because I bet you they know. I bet you some of them know either somebody that's playing hurt that hasn't told anybody because they don't want to get cut or lose their playing time, or they know somebody that's just, you know, either hitting dirty or somebody who's not defend or protecting themselves. One of a player that I know that's a pro football player was telling me about how, you know, they were trying to decide whether to let him play or not because he'd had a he'd had a neck tweak and he couldn't protect himself with his left arm left arm and he was a fullback. And so they were trying to decide, could he play or not? Because if he couldn't protect himself, then he couldn't play, and he ended up not being able to play that game. But I'm going to finish this one thought, and then I'll come back to you, right, sir. Sure. And then the last question is, is, is called from a theory called jobs to be done theory. And there's a book by um, Clayton Christensen called Competing Against Luck. And what jobs to be done theory is, is that a lot of times we make tools for people, but that's not really what they'll hire it to do. So the segue is a perfect example really cool little thing you guys all know what that is it has the wheels you stand on it but they're not very popular look at the scooter how much more popular here in san antonio than the segway is and you know it was because nobody really wanted to hire the segway to do anything it's big where do you park it what if somebody steals it it's expensive what are you going to do with it you can't leave it places and so what ends up is is what we would pay it to do maybe take us around the corner Maybe, you know, take us for a fun ride like a bike or on your skateboard or whatever. It doesn't do. So nobody would hire it. So that's what it didn't get bought. But if you look at, for example, Apple, the reason that that job's to be done worked is because they didn't build it to satisfy your need of a computer. They built it to satisfy your need of communication and knowledge and interaction. That's why it's worked so well. And so the jobs to be done, of we, a question we're going to ask is, is, what's one obstacle we could remove so you can make it to the NFL? If you had one thing that you knew, if we took that away, if we made that better, you believe you have your best chance to get to the NFL. That's really important because we're going to learn how we can design our program and help our program. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take any of that feedback we get, we're going to triage it to me, I'll look at somebody that can work on problems and I'll assign it, and then I'll send them a letter or an email within a week telling them where I triaged it. Now triage is essential, right? Because let's say for example, Mitch, that, you, that I met with you, I was the superintendent of whatever your school district is, and I say, Mitch, okay, what can we do to help you? And you say, you could help my staffing. If you give me staffing, you know, we could do a good job. Well, am I gonna be able to fix that acutely? Probably not. So now if I say, I'm gonna send you a letter telling you how I solved your problem, I'm going to send you a letter and say, Mitch, I couldn't solve your problem. So there's, not, so I, there's no accountability there. 
But if I commit to triaging your problem to work on this, there's accountability. And then the last part is you need, you need the player's voice officially. So as we look at certain things, we're going to develop player councils as well as uh, spouse councils. But, sir, clarification. Oh, I love them to tell me. I love them to tell me. I do not want to close down that question. It could be that these are the coaches. Because imagine the support I'll get if I begin giving anonymously that there are coaches in the league that are doing this well or that well or appreciate it. Or like right now in training camp, is that two minutes or stop? Two minutes. Okay. So in training camp, um, one of the things I'll go around, and I've talked to probably, oh, I don't know, over 100 players now. I just sit with them at lunch and I say, hey, how are you doing? Where are you from? That kind of thing. And um, <clears throat> I asked them, well, what are we doing well? And they said, the food. Oh, my God, the food is awesome. <laughs> now, here's the deal. We have a site massage therapist. We have, a, we have uh, how many athletic trainers? We have four, four or five per team, athletic trainers, physical therapists, you know, all this stuff. We have one nutritionist for the whole league right now because we're going to deploy it. She has done all of the catering contracts, all that. She is Amy Goodson. She is amazing. And, um, and they love the food. I mean, they say this is the best food we've ever had. And these are, a lot of these are former NFL players. So, I mean, you know, it's really good to be able to go back to Amy and say, you know, man, you, and she reports to me, man, you are awesome. Thank you so much for that. Because, right, if, as a human being, if we don't have good food, we don't have a safe place to sleep and our family isn't okay, we're done. So, you know what? I am going to quit when I'm supposed to. But um, I really appreciate the time with you guys. I really cherish that.